to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm here with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm joined by my new friend, Patrick Kirby, founder of Do Good Better. And in fact, what I love about his website is he talks about being awesomer. I like being awesomer. You like being awesomer. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, how are you? I'm super excited. This is going to be great. You are. So so Patrick also came super caffeinated. So everyone hold on to your hats because Patrick's going to take us on a little ride here. It's on. Let's go. He, he is ready. It's go time. Patrick is here to talk all about fundraising. So Patrick, tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to fundraising. Sure. Yeah, you know, I'm a 15-year fundraising veteran. I started out right after college working for my old high school doing sort of alumni and events and that kind of stuff. I then went to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. I ran the sort of galas and walk programs out of there, out of Minneapolis. So had Minnesota, the Dakotas, got really excited, moved up to Fargo, started an office for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation there, got recruited out to work as the uh, chief development officer at the Ann Carlson Center. And it's kind of a school and a wonderful place for individuals and young children with developmental disability and delay. Did that for about five years. And I had this kind of sinking feeling that I was going to do something on my own. And so about two years ago, I decided to take a leap and start my own consulting firm, helping small and medium-sized nonprofits suck less at fundraising. And that's where we have met on the interwebs. The beautiful, beautiful interwebs. So you are located in lovely Fargo, North Dakota. The only thing I know about Fargo is the movie. I'm sorry, I've never been there. That's okay. In, In our visitor center down the road, the actual wood chippers there. So you can come visit anytime and you can do the bit where everybody takes the photo of the leg and the thing. You can do that right here. Patrick, I got to be honest with you. There are a few people I can think about that I would have wanted to put in a wood chipper at various Mm -hmm. points in my life. But this this gets you off scot-free because you can then tell yourself mentally that you've done that to that person without any uh, crime whatsoever. Fantastic. I I, I very much appreciate not being in jail. So that's cool. So tell me a little bit about Patrick because I am a lifelong fundraiser as well. And why is it do you think that people are so afraid of the F word, fundraising? I think they are terrified because they think it's difficult and they think that they can't do it. I, I, I honestly think that they're, because there's no roadmap to any individual fundraising, they think it must be complicated, it's super hard, and they have this terrifying fear of asking for money. Mm-hmm. So then when you explain to them that it's not really asking for money, it's building relationships and telling stories, they really have that aha moment of like, oh, that sounds more fun than asking people for money. And then I think it opens up the door. But there's not a lot of people who are super excited about telling people about the opportunities that you have for fundraising. And you know, you do it as a kid going door to door selling candy or whatever, and you don't realize that just building a relationship with the neighbor, friends, family, coworkers, whatever, that's fundraising. And mm-hmm. all you got to do is try to connect people to what they're passionate about. And if it falls under your umbrella at your organization, you don't even have to make an ask most of the time. You just say, hey, would you consider supporting us? We've got a number of opportunities. I think it'd be great. You would love it. You'll feel great. We'll feel great. We'll do some good stuff together. Poof. And I think when you when you lay it out that way, people then kind of take a deep breath and say, okay, well, that doesn't sound so terrible. I think I could handle that. And then they can. It's easy. Yeah. 
But here's the thing. I mean, you sound like you're a really fun guy and I'm sure you make it a lot of fun, but there is an element of rejection, right? Like not yes. everybody is going to be interested in your cause. And I, I think the fear of rejection is real. Yeah, it is. And I think you have to go into it saying that this is not for everybody, not only from you being a fundraiser, but donating to your charity isn't everybody's cup of tea. There are some people who don't like dogs. So mm -hmm. if you are, you're like an individual, I don't know who those people are. They probably shouldn't come talk to I me. Don't, but. I don't. Yeah, I'd never trust that person. But right. there are them, those people that exist out there. Maybe cats would be like a better version of that because I know way more people who don't like cats. But if they don't like animals in general, let's just say they yep. just don't like animals, and you work for an animal shelter and you're raising money for that, and you know that this person doesn't enjoy animals at all, it's probably not a good place to start asking for money, right? Mm -hmm. And so you you know by asking questions that you intuitively kind of get that this person is going to be a pro or, a, or against. And I think you can avoid the no's. The other thing too is that it's okay for people to say no. Like if you go up and somebody says, you're, you're at a restaurant and you say, hey, can I get a Diet Coke? And they're like, is Pepsi okay? And then you go, nope, it's not. I wanted a Diet Coke. And you tell them no. The waiter or the waitress is not going to get upset that mm -hmm. you just told them no. The same way that you shouldn't be upset when somebody says, I don't want to give you 20 bucks for this organization that I have no idea what you do or care about. Mm -hmm. It's totally okay. That's, mm -hmm. that's totally fine. And, and I think we need to start in the nonprofit world specifically, we need to start thinking differently and saying, what does the donor need to get out of this rather than what do we need to raise money to keep the lights on? We do mm -hmm. that right away, and all of a sudden, the fear and the and the the hesitation and the weirdness of of getting told no wipes away clean because you know that it wasn't a good fit, mm -hmm. and you've done now yourself a great service by not having that person give you money and feel bad about it. And so yep. that becomes your superpower as you go out and and try to tell stories and and, and build relationships. Is your superpower is knowing that your no is a yes somewhere else. And you're helping lift up other organizations that they might have a better relationship or a connection with. And poof, now you can actually give no's a big old thumbs up rather than, oh, woe is me kind of thing. I mean, it reminds me of something my husband likes to tell me a lot, which is like, it's only weird if you make it weird. Yes. That's a, that's a great way to think about that. Yeah. And, and I think you don't, it's not necessarily oversensitive. And I think we all have those as professional fundraisers. We all have that moment where we got told no, we're like, well, that was a bummer. I totally misjudged that. I thought right. this was a slam dunk. And you kind of feel bad about it for a minute. You're like, what, where did I go wrong there? And you'll replay the conversations you've had over the years with that person. And you'll probably figure out that, oh, you know what? I missed this. I missed that. It wasn't great timing and it's fine, but you immediately go back to, hey, they're still our friends. They still like us. They probably come to our events. Maybe they just don't want to give that much money to us, et cetera. Let me ask you this. How much of this do you think is also wrapped up in people's weird relationship with money? Because I think we all have baggage about money. I think in our culture, it's very taboo to talk about money in an open way. And so, and yet we project all of this emotional stuff onto it based yes. largely on how we were raised, right? So like if you were right. raised with a lot of money or raised with no money or raised with something in between, like we all have baggage. You know, it, especially here in flyover country and the Dakotas, we don't like talking about money at all. Right. So we are... Probably it's not that really, different in New York, actually. Yes, but well, here I'll give you an example of like why it's really weird here, though. There are individuals here who have so much oil wealth, right? Mm -hmm. So North Dakota is one of the most they hyper produce oil here, 
And people on the land, they get mineral rights. And so they've got this money they've, they've never had before. They've been land rich, cash poor their entire life. And they get this boatload of money and they buy the same truck with the same model in the same color, same size every single year because they don't know what to do with it. And then they park that truck in a shed and they only drive it at night because they don't want their neighbors to know that they bought a new truck. That's how weird it is with money here. And they also have this sense where, because we're in farming country, and I, I think New York is like this with the, with the market and all the other things too, is sometimes they don't see the abundance of what resources are out there. I mm -hmm. think they, they don't assume that people have the capacity to give. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they associate, well, I can't give that much. Therefore I can't ask for that much. That's right. And that, that disproportionate sort of balance there really throws people off. And you're a hundred percent right when people are really weird about money, especially the way that we grow up. Like you save money, you, you hoard it away so you can retire. A lot of people just have money anyway, or if they've stumbled into it, or they want to experience joy and awesomeness now, mm -hmm. and you're providing them the avenue to do that. A lot of conversations that, that I've had traditionally over the years with people who have like been in our wills and trusts and whatever, I'm like, wouldn't you like to enjoy your generosity now rather than mm -hmm. when you're in a grave and you know looking down from the heavens? Like, isn't that a better way to, to enjoy this? Like, mm -hmm great. And people don't realize that or they don't have those conversations because they're so weirded out about not having enough. Yeah. I think I talk a lot about this, the scarcity mindset, and that can happen mm -hmm. no matter how much money you have or don't have, right? Because it's really just a mindset. It's 100%. actually not really based on real things. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about fundraising practices and how a lot of folks don't know what they're doing. So what are some of the most hated fundraising practices? You know, I have a couple that I can add, but you you start first and I'll I'll jump on that bus. So one of the things, and again, I, I love small nonprofits. They are scrappy and they're great. But one of the things that drives me bananas is the dying to donate fundraiser bit. And I'm not sure if you have, you know, these things on the coast where you get a bunch of people that you know to show up to a restaurant on a day that they're not busy and they'll give you a 10% back to your nonprofit. If and only if you present them with the printout PDF poster that you had to bring from home and you can't solicit at the door and you can't go and build relationships when they're eating and you just hope that their $9.99 riblet meal will raise enough money of that 10% that your charity will, will be victorious. And they spend an inordinate amount of time marketing and begging people to show up to eat m meals on a Tuesday night where like nobody wants to go and then 30 people show up, they raise $140 or not even that probably. And then they have to go back and say, how many hours did I put into that to get whatever result is? It drives me bananas about how, uh, because they see it as an opportunity or one of the only opportunities to do a fundraiser. And I was like, why don't you just pound the phone? <laughs> I just, it blows my mind. So I would much rather have individuals just spend the time on the phone or having coffees or building relationships or making ask for a hundred dollars. Make right. 10 of those, you make five times what you made at the fundraiser and you didn't spend all the time marketing another business that's not your organization. Yep. Drives okay. me banana nuts. That's certainly one. I've got one, which is the amount of time that people spend on 30 second elevator pitches <sighs> and pitch decks. Because here's the mm -hmm. thing, I, decade long fundraiser, 
millions of dollars raised, have never in the history of my career magically had a 30-second elevator pitch lead to a gift. Like there was no. no, there's like no magical combination of words that leads to someone whipping out a checkbook. No. And I think for me, it seems like people lean on that to avoid getting personal and to avoid yes. being vulnerable and making a human connection because that's Absolutely. way scarier. Well, but instead I'll, I'll put a nice little PowerPoint deck in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Here, let me get out my computer to show you what I do as, as an organization. And I, I've, I've seen that in coffee shops. I've seen them try to do that in. It's terrible. Um, it's awful. And there is nobody very rarely, unless you are a grants organization and you have to like, by the stroke of midnight, we must give away this money and we need to see all, like yeah. nobody's doing this. No. The reason people donate is because they feel emotionally or deeply connected to the amount of impact that your organization is going to make. And the mm-hmm. only way you get to do that is to tell amazing impact stories and build a relationship one-on-one and looking somebody into the eyes and saying, I think this is a great fit. You've told me that you want to make massive impact. Is there something on this tree that you'd consider doing because we're about to move mountains and you're a big part of that? That's how you raise money. And anybody who's trying to do something different is exactly what you said, is avoiding the heavy lifting relationship building that takes months, if not years, to Mm -hmm. curate. And that, that I think, is a major problem. Yeah. Yeah, I I often talk about that and maybe it's not PC to do, but I always talk about, you know, when you're meeting donors, it's like going on a date, right? Mm-hmm. And then you decide if you want to take it to the next level. Yes. So at what point on a date has anyone ever whipped out a PowerPoint? Yeah. Very true. Yes. I, and if they have then like they've got some other problems I can't help them with. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Here's a, some statistics on why we should date for yeah. a second time. Let, let me show you why <laughs> I am a good boyfriend. Yep. Uh, Notice page uh, two, the graph. <laughs> the slide three is going to generate a lot of the pros of me going I, on a second. I've analyzed the ROI on our relationship, and I can tell you, you invest. That is such a great. Time. It's such a great analogy. It's such a great analogy because again, you're not going to go on a first date, have a ring in your pocket, and ask them to marry you. That's right. Nobody's doing that, which is why I think people, back to your original question, which is why people are terrified of the F word, which is fundraising, is everybody thinks that every ask is a million dollars and that you are, you are in behind a desk building a list of people that you can ask them for seven figures. And that is not what fundraising is. And anybody telling you differently is trying to either scare you or you're getting told terrible information or you're in the wrong job. <laughs> like that is a terrible place to be because it's not. It's mm-hmm. fostering a relationship so that those that you're building the relationship with understand the amazing things that you do and how they can help. That's it. That's so what, it. Are, what other pet peeves do you have? Oh, boy. So I'm an events guy. Like, I really like fundraising events because I believe Oh, that my you, gosh. Like, Patrick, where have you been all my life? Because I feel I like we've I feel like we've events. I, I am an individual major gifts person. I'm like, if I never have to throw a gala ever again. I literally did not have a wedding because I was like, it's too much like a, a gala for fundraising. It's too much like work. I can't do it. Let's go to city hall. Done. Yeah. Well, I can't go to them anymore. I, I can go to some of them, but I, but I can't bring my wife anymore because I sit at the, I sit at one of the tables and I go, I wouldn't do that. 
mm, that's a bad yeah. deal, right? So <laughs> she's like, can't you just enjoy yourself? I go, I can't, I know too much. I know. And I think they're great for trapping people in a room to spread your message, but you have mm -hmm. to do it, you have to do it creatively. And I mm -hmm. think the people who rely on like, we're gonna do a silent auction, and then we're gonna do a live auction, and then we're gonna do that, like this, this whole process that you've seen done a million times that everybody's bored with, I think the insistence of doing it because other people are doing it is, is killing organizations. Now, if you want to have an event or you want to have some social interaction with that, be creative and unique and special and do something a little weird mm -hmm. because that at least will invest you in having a good time doing it rather than checking off boxes and going mm -hmm. through the motion. And I think that a pet peeve of mine is like, well, we've always done it that way. Then we're going to do this. Oh well, God, that's, I know. If you say that word to me, I'm going to get, I'm going to itch all over. Mm -hmm. And then the other one too, is that it's a cop out because yep. it, it makes you're not using your brain for good. You're mm -hmm. using your brain just to go through motions. And that is a dangerous precedence, I think, in the fundraising world. Wait, I have another one to add. How about when your board member is like, why don't we just call, insert the rich person, Oprah slash Mark Zuckerberg slash Bill Gates slash whatever, right. and just ask them for money? Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, okay. Well, unless you have those people on speed dial, like this is a conversation that is going nowhere. And even if they did... First, I have a very big problem, and it's not because I'm I'm defending donors or anything like that, but they don't owe you anything. Yeah, right. No donor owes you a lick of anything. You sh that is it. They don't mm -hmm. owe you things. And so to assume this 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 brings up a whole like another board thing where we could just talk about boards for like four hours. Oh yeah, no, we'll have you back. We'll talk about boards. That is another thing. Big, but I think their unreasonable expectations leads to a lot of burnout in mm -hmm. development because they don't understand proce the process. Like yep. they're on a board, they have a process for a board, but they don't understand the nuance of fundraising and they think they're like, oh, this is a great idea and they'll throw it out there. Mm -hmm. And then you're left going, I mean, do I try to do that? I don't know what the directive is. Mm -hmm. And it was such an outrageous, outlandish thing to even admit, like say out loud. Well, then you're like, well, I don't, Great. Now we're ruined. Patrick, I got to tell you, the ice bucket challenge is that all over. Well, why don't we just do our own ice bucket challenge and we'll raise millions of dollars? Really? That's the strategy? <laughs> great great plan. Great plan, yeah. everybody. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to plan or, on going viral with this yeah, random yeah, That's the thing. thing. We need to do something viral. Okay, get a communicable disease. I don't understand <laughs> what, what do you want me to do. That doesn't make sense. And the forced forced marketing of something that is is not your own or something that is meaningful is meaningless. Mm -hmm. It's just this just terrible advice that other people are giving you that you should never take. Or how talking. about this one? This this is one of my favorites. Well, if everybody in New York just gave us a dollar, really? Do you yeah. know every single person in New York? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Everybody's got a dollar. Yeah. Why not? Yep. That's that's pretty easy. It's just, and it's so annoying that I think a lot of people, when they, when they listen to this back, and they're going to be a lot of people just nodding their heads going, mm -hmm. oh my God, it's not just me. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's what a lot of fundraisers do is they, and, and they don't talk to each other. They don't get into small groups to say, can we just all agree not to do this? Or can mm -hmm. we all just agree to mm -hmm. like put our foot down? Because I think a lot of fundraisers, it, it, when it's your profession, don't like to have conversations of frustration with other contemporaries in their in their industry because they want to be seen as I got my crap together mm -hmm. and I don't need to worry about it whatever 
and, and really when people are listening to this specifically is that it's okay to feel overwhelmed and not want to do anything like your board just suggested for the ice bucket challenge or yeah. like, Hey, let's put ketchup on ourselves. It'll be hilarious. Yeah. Like it's okay to say no. And then that's not a good idea. And, and, and trusting your gut can be a very difficult thing when you have a board or an executive director or a CEO, or whatever, who is commanding that you make these monetary goals that are totally unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to like, Am I the crazy one? Am I the one that's insane that should be saying no? And, and I think when somebody suggests everybody in New York give you a dollar or everybody in North Dakota give you a dollar, at some point you're going to have to go, no, that doesn't make any sense and make a stand rather than going, I mean, may, maybe if half do, like yeah, trying to yeah, rationalize yeah, yeah. this terrible idea that somebody gives you. Oh, that's the yeah. worst. The other one that I don't like is the reliance on like butter braids or pizza sales. For, because the, the schools do it and like, hey, the schools oh, raised, yeah. raised a lot of money. I'm like, but but nobody wants to do that. You're exchanging $20 bills between everybody in the community. Yeah, this is not no, a good thing. No, no. Right, you know. Just just no on all the things. So this is a great subway. What do you think, because here in New York, and I expect maybe the same isn't true in North Dakota, is it is really hard to find a good fundraiser and it's really yeah. hard to have them stay in the seat for more yes. than 18 months, two years. And so, and I think part of it is, and I had another guest on my podcast who talked about, well, you know, if you're not a great fundraiser, if you get out of there before 18 months, no one will actually figure out that you're a bad fundraiser. But I think uh-huh. there are a lot of great fundraisers yeah. who don't stick around. So mm-hmm. why is that? And what can we do to address that? Boy, I, I, I think we touched on a little bit with this, which is the unreasonable expectations. I think the boards who hire individuals, who take a leap of faith and say, okay, we're going to expand our fundraising reach. We, we're going to need to invest in a development director or development person, right? You're going to pay for that person to come in. And for the first 90 days, you're going to wow them with your like wit and it's going to be fun and you're enthusiastic. And all of a sudden, after 90 days, you're not bringing in six figures. And all of a sudden, their alarms at the board or the leadership level are, why aren't you bringing in money? Mm -hmm. And their insistence that they need to have money and results right away Mm -hmm. and not having patience drives people out of this industry because they know they're put in a bad position because it's unreasonable to expect a 5,000% increase in donors for the foreseeable future immediately. Mm-hmm. And that lack of patience rubs good fundraisers the wrong way because they know deep inside that it takes a long time. Back to your relationship point. You don't get married right away. You need to have dates and then you go on second dates and third dates and then maybe you meet the parents and then after the parents are a while you go on vacation together or maybe you you, right there's a lot of steps in the process boards and leadership who don't understand fundraising and i think that's a lot to do with it is that people who hire fundraisers don't understand fundraising Mm -hmm. they expect too much too soon Mm -hmm. and that drives people away because they're like well i don't need this garbage i'm was a i was a great relationship builder in sales this way this way and i was in leadership here why am i going to waste my time worrying about things that i'm unable to do or communicate that i'm unable to do i must be hurting the team there must be somebody better than me i'm going to quit and just let that happen Mm -hmm. realizing and much to your point they are probably the best person for the job 
but not given the framework in to be successful. Yeah. I mean, I think that resonates a lot with me because I, I was an executive director who did a lot of fundraising. And so when we hired a fundraiser, I made very clear to the board that Number one, this is not a magical development fairy who's going to come down from the sky and wave a magic wand and money's just going to appear. And in fact, I'm going to be putting them to work much harder than they've been because I now have another person who will follow up with them and work their Rolodexes and make them do stuff. Right. And also, and I say this all the time, fundraising is a full contact sport. So I don't care who you are. You can be the assistant. Everybody in this organization is responsible for fundraising. Yes. Yep. And if you are a board member that doesn't believe in that and you are a you you you're there to help, you know, facilitate whatever leadership role that okay, fine. If you didn't know that, fine. But you're opening up doors and you're helping us kick in things so that we can actually do our jobs properly without you sitting on high judging from your ivory tower about how we're supposed to do that. So and I think having people who are hiring individuals to do development, have development background and understanding exactly what you just said, which is how everybody it's all hands on deck all the time. Mm -hmm. Like we are all talking about this because if you don't, some other organization is Mm -hmm. and, and they're going to be a more aggressor and put out better stories and better because they're, they know this, they know how the system works. They know how process yeah. works. Yep. So Patrick, let me ask you this. And this is something that I really struggled with personally, but how do you really create a culture of mm-hmm. philanthropy from top to bottom? Because, you know, I see this all the time. The development folks are siloed from the program folks and the program folks somehow feel like, Oh, it's dirty for me to mm-hmm. talk about fundraising. Like we don't do money. I'm like, yeah philosophically pure and you're like well okay but do you also like that check that you get every two weeks that happens do you like the fact that we can buy materials and pay teachers and get the buses that's what fundraising is it it really is i think investing them in the message right away is is a really good starting point so having your program people or those who are boots on the ground doing the work that you're fundraising for be at the table to talk about the amazing success stories that they're having so that when you are talking in public, you're referencing their good deeds and their awesomeness while you're talking with donors. And now you can come back or introduce a donor or introduce a donation that comes through and attribute it to the amazing story and action that they did that, that made the gift happen. Right? Mm -hmm. So Closing the gap, and you said it really well, siloing it out to say everything you do in the field has a direct correlation to the stories that we're telling, which is the direct correlation to the impact that donors think they can help make. Like you are a part of this team and being upfront with it right away and not shying away from celebrating the successes that you have in your program or challenges that you have and bringing them to the table to, to, to start the messaging. I think that's the first line of offense there for sure. The, the second one is give of something, time, talent, or treasure. And I think we are obsessed with money in the fundraising world when some of the program people, let's just say the DD community, developmental disability community. If you're a DSP, you're a direct support professional, you're making you know, here 15 bucks an hour and you're working two jobs to supplement some income, it's not rational to expect you to start throwing $100 bills per month out of the gate from your paycheck. However, if you would volunteer some time or give sort of or open doors or have conversations or be a part of the pitch process, you can find value. And we have to attribute that as fundraisers, like your value here is 
telling amazing stories for our donors to hear or Mm -hmm. participating by getting us information of the impact that you're making in the field. That is value. And we value that as much as money internally. And then, then that begins to sort of alleviate this disconnect between the doers and the fundraisers from ground all the way up. I, I, I really don't want to get into millennial bashing. I, I do. I love millennials. And one of the challenges that I have noticed over the last couple of years is that I think millennials are much more socially and politically conscious than any mm-hmm. other generation previously. And, and what comes of that is a real questioning of sources of money. And particularly here in New York, post-2008, I mean, there was a lot of pushback around people that were accepting money from, be it big banks, be it other companies that may have ethical practices in their past that don't drive with our values. And yet on the same token, like we still need to meet our budget. So is that something that you've dealt with? Yeah, I think this becomes a communication piece, right? Mm -hmm. So it is explaining to the next generation of how things actually work rather than the mythical magical unicorn world that they think it works. And I think there, and you have to be careful with this because they just haven't been taught these things, the reality of how stuff works. And that's not a shot at, at them at all, because I think they're one of the harder working, more insightful and thoughtful generations that we've ever had. And much to your sake, they're very socially conscious. They want to help. But to attribute the money here does this Mm -hmm. and that not every entity is evil. I think that is another piece to the puzzle too, is that you can't, you, you need to not lump everybody in with this. Your local credit union or your local banking executive is not in a smoke filled back room with a bunch of old white dudes on wall street, you know, sort of plotting against the man. Like that's not happening. They have a wife, they have a kids, they have a family. They have probably have resources that are injected into the community in which you are serving. 